you would turn to Ephesians chapter 3, we'll be studying the text there in a moment, Ephesians chapter 3. It's a joy to be with everyone this morning to worship together, to encourage each other in these songs of spiritual worship to God. Appreciate Foster leading us in those songs and readying us to think even more so about some spiritual things this morning and appreciate all the others who have contributed to leadership in this worship and for your involvement of raising up voices in honor of God and praise of God that has certainly been encouraging to myself and I hope it has been to you this morning. Appreciate Austin reading from Ephesians chapter 3, a familiar text I think to us, one that is very rich in content. We're going to try to think about some of those things this morning. In John chapter 4, Jesus told his disciples when they were in Samaria that he sends them to reap that for which they have not labored. He said, others have labored and you have entered into their labors. That's a pretty fundamental principle in all areas of life, but especially in spiritual work as the apostles would go preach the gospel to a world. Essentially, they would be reaping from the efforts of others who had gone before them, John the Baptist, prophets, Jesus himself. And that's certainly true in other walks of life. We we talk about it in regard to a national perspective when we think about what is considered the greatest generation and all the sacrifice they made during World War II and how different life is because of the battles that they waged on the home front and in foreign fields. We're so thankful to them. And a lot of times those sacrifices and efforts have been taken for granted. And we have not gone forward in our lives to honor the sacrifices and the labors of those who have gone before us. And that's the concept Jesus is speaking to his disciples there. There's a lot of groundwork that's been laid for you to go be successful in your ministry as those who are apostles of Christ. The Apostle Paul in Acts or in Ephesians chapter 3 mentions his work that ultimately has laid groundwork for us to live the life of Christians and to extend the gospel invitation to others as well. He mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation or stewardship or administration of the grace of God which was given to me for you, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. Verse 5, which in other ages has not been made known by the sons of men, but has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. He says in verse 8, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is impressing upon them how God, by His grace, had used Paul in this great work to benefit the Gentiles and bring them into the family of God. Paul, along with the rest of the apostles, did a tremendous amount of work, labored a tremendous amount to make sure the gospel would spread throughout the entire world, and that not only their countrymen as Jews would be given opportunity to... Rectify the wrongs that they had committed in rejecting the Messiah and then be added to that kingdom that the Messiah set up in his death and his resurrection. But also that those who had always been separated from Christ and the blessed promises that were attributed to his reign 
would be involved in that. The Apostle Paul is one who was commissioned to go specifically to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews, was very instrumental in that effort. And he he never takes the um, credit for this, but always attributes it to the grace of God. That's why he said in verse 2, he called the dispensation that of the grace of God. By the grace of God, he'd say in 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am. But nevertheless, he had a great part to play in this and his efforts were instrumental in this. And so the Ephesians needed to understand just how intricate and involved Paul was in his preaching with their ability to call on the Father through Jesus Christ. The blessings they had as Christians in Ephesus owed themselves to the Apostle Paul's work and, of course, God's grace through that. And so they had gained a great relationship with Paul as those who Paul labored amongst did throughout his ministry. He spoke in 2 Corinthians 11 among all of his trials and tribulations, among the greatest of them were his great concern for all the churches. And he dealt especially with that with the Corinthians in the second letter to that church when they struggled with the false teachers among them to win them to their side. And Paul manifested his great care and concern for them that they had they had grown distant from him, but for no reason. And he tries to remind them about how all he determined to do was to bring them closer to Christ and that through his work, not these false apostles, they had indeed gained that relationship. And so as Paul preached to people and established churches, there was a a very intimate relationship and bond that was established. And so as Paul pens this epistle from prison, knowing everything that he had done for the brethren and the fact that he was in prison because of his labor in the gospel for their sakes, he calls himself there. In verse 1, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. I'm in prison because by God's grace, I brought you the benefits of the gospel that he talked about and enumerated in chapter 1, the blessings and the heavenly places in Christ. It makes sense then that these brethren treasured their relationship with him so much and appreciated his labors so much, his stewardship in the gospel that his imprisonment would have moved them greatly. Notice in chapter 6 and in verse 19, he mentions the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And then he says in verse 21 of Ephesians 6, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister, and the Lord will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. They were troubled by the Apostle Paul's imprisonment. They cared deeply and appreciated deeply the sacrifice Paul is making, and it was having a tremendous effect on them negatively as they were overwhelmed by sorrow on his behalf. And so when we look at chapter 3, we're right in the context of Paul talking about his work as a steward in the gospel and and the revealing of what that work entailed, namely to bring Gentiles into the family of God. And it was God's will to use Paul in a primary way to show to the world that it's not just the Jews that can be saved. It's not just the Jews that belong to Jehovah God, but anyone who comes to him through 
Christ. You notice there in verse 13 what he says. In the middle of that, talking about a stewardship that has benefited them and that they greatly appreciate, no doubt. He says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you. And so I'm doing all of this work for you. And it's why I'm in prison. Because of my labor in the gospel on your behalf, I'm in prison. But he doesn't say that to make them discouraged. He, in fact, says, don't be discouraged by that. And you notice what he says. It is your glory. You see, the devil tries to take a hold on our situations like this, where maybe a person close to us who has done a lot for us is in a situation like Paul, who has been wrongfully imprisoned or who is struggling with some kind of affliction, being mistreated, just some kind of thing that would provoke sorrow in our hearts, and rightly so. And the devil tries to take a hold of that and tries to completely turn over the plan of God for us. He tries to kind of murky the waters in our minds so that we lose perspective, we lose focus. And the very things in this context that Paul would have been working toward and for on their behalf that put him in prison would have been forgotten in the minds of the Ephesians. And they would have lost that perspective and only been focused on the fact that their beloved brother Paul is in prison wrongfully and is suffering all of these things. And it was because of what he was doing for me that that happened and, and kind of lose sight of what they should be doing, lose focus. And what that would really do where their mind might have been, well, I'm so concerned for him and my thoughts are with him because of all of this and what he's done for me. And, and our minds lead to this kind of honoring of what he's done, the sacrifices he's made. Don't want to forget about him. I want him to understand how much I feel for him it would have actually failed to honor what he had done for them. Notice there in verse 12, he says that in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And Paul is saying, listen, my ministry in the gospel that would bring in the Gentiles to the inclusion of these spiritual blessings has made that boldness and access and confidence manifest to you. It's, it's given you the ability to access God through my preaching of the gospel, what I did that put me in prison has allowed you to approach the throne of God in boldness. And so don't lose heart at my tribulations. Take advantage of what they accomplished in bringing you into this relationship with God through Christ. And so when he goes in verse 14 and he speaks about this prayer that he's making on their behalf, it's very much instructive. He's petitioning God that they would be strengthened, not discouraged. He's petitioning God that all his work that amounted to his imprisonment would actually affect in them what God intended for it to affect in them. But in that would be instruction for them to not honor him by weeping on his behalf and losing heart. But honor what he's done that put him into prison by letting it work in them. Otherwise, this is all in vain. In Philippians 2, he says something similarly. In verse 16, he tells them to hold fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And then he says, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so essentially what he's saying is that, listen, it's right for you to be moved by my tribulation. It's right for you to care for me. He told the Hebrews or the Hebrew writer did at least that you 
you had this concern with my chains and affliction. And he tells them in chapter 13 of Hebrews, remember those who are imprisoned as if you're imprisoned with them. That kind of affection and compassion is needed and appropriate. But he says, you need to also rejoice because everything that I did that put me here is for your glory. It's to help you. It's to get you to heaven. It's it's death for me, but it's life for you. It's confinement for me, but it's freedom in the gospel for you to go on and bear fruit to God. So don't lose heart. But instead, let what I've done in the gospel effort have its intended effect on you, because if you just shrink and sorrow and are overwhelmed and disheartened by what I'm going through and you lose perspective, then everything I did is for nothing. And so I think as we study the gospel, as we think about what we're supposed to be as Christians, not just with what the apostles in Christ did for us, with the word we have based on the efforts of these men of faith that God used to reveal his word, but also all of our family and friends and loved ones who had laid the groundwork for us before, that we need to honor that work. We need to honor the work of the apostle Paul, not by just kind of reminiscing and getting in the feels about those things. But putting our nose to the grindstone and letting this work have its effect in our lives. So notice what he says there in Ephesians chapter three and verse 14. For this reason, he says, don't let yourself lose heart. For this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And I think that's the idea, not every family, but the whole family, not just Jew, but Gentile, the whole family, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be, firstly, he says, strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. How were the Ephesians to respond appropriately to the plight of their beloved brother Paul, who's in prison because of what he did for them? Well, it's not to lose heart and be overwhelmed in sorrow, but he's saying that you need to let the Spirit strengthen you. Not be discouraged, but let the Spirit strengthen you in the inner man. And so that's his prayer to God that this would be effective in their life, but it would stand as an instruction for them to let the Spirit empower you. Don't be discouraged by what I'm going through, but all the work that I put forth, the gospel I revealed to you, how I ministered, among you, let that spirit revealed word work in you. Let it empower you. In Luke chapter one, Mary realizes the great grace of God and his mercy. And she does it in very poetic and beautiful language in her song. But you remember, as we studied not long ago in Luke chapter one, that she mentioned in her song that Jehovah has shown strength with his arm. And she revealed that he has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts and put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And so throughout the gospel, there is the stress and emphasis on the fact of man's impotence and God's profound immeasurable power. And that's what he's trying to get the Ephesians to realize. That you need to... Let God strengthen you. You need to let the spirit empower you and strengthen you. And so in this time of turmoil and trial and struggle and sorrow, it would be unwise for you to just try to go with your own strength. The whole reason the gospel has been revealed to you is because it's not within man 
to find salvation, but it is within man to rely on Jesus, rely on God for that strength. He would say in chapter four and verse one, in the application portion of his epistle, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy with the calling with which you are called. And so they may be thinking about Paul in prison and they're discouraged by that and they're, they're tending to lose heart, but they realize they've got a calling with which they've been called. And they need to walk worthy of that. And, and they're, they're struggling because they're mindful of Paul and in prison. And that's why he's saying, listen, you can't lose heart. What you've got to do is focus up on the spiritual revelation. You've got to be strengthened with might through the spirit in the inner man. If you're to walk worthy of this calling with which you've been called, you're to bear fruit to God's glory through Christ Jesus. You've got to appeal to God's strength. You, you can't dwell on these things, but you've got to let the spirit in to empower you. God's not impressed with our strength. You know, I think sometimes Christians, they try to go at bearing fruit to God's glory and living the sanctified life by their own ability. And that may, that may look like a person who has really worked on their self-control. Maybe it was through some other means that they're trying to apply in a spiritual field. Maybe, maybe they lost a lot of weight and they had to learn self-control with that. Maybe they got in shape. They had to learn self-control with that. Maybe they had some kind of an addiction they had to kick and they went to a psychologist and they read a bunch of these books and they went through these forms and practices and they were able to kick the addiction. And so when Christ says you need to, you need to exhibit self-control, you need to hold yourself off against these lusts of the flesh, they're thinking, well, I know how to do that. And what they're really doing is suggesting that my strength is sufficient in this. God doesn't look on that. God doesn't care about that. What he wants is full surrender to the strength and empowerment of the spirit. In Psalm 147, the psalmist says something interesting about God. In verse 10 of Psalm 147, it says that God does not delight in the strength of the horse and he takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his mercy. And he says essentially what Paul says in Romans 9 and verse 16. It is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And so God's not impressed of our can do it attitude just in and of itself. But I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it through the spirit who's transforming my inner man. And isn't that what Paul learned in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Remember his thorn in the flesh and he pled with the Lord three times that it might depart from him. And he answered, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul said, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's the same word as we read here in Ephesians chapter three, dunamis, be strengthened with might, with that power through the spirit in the inner man. And so Paul's telling them, listen, if you want to honor what I've done for you, Study the spirit revealed word and let it empower you. Let it strengthen you. Let it equip you to do what you were called to do. To walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And so I want us to notice that before we move to that next point, he says to let the spirit strengthen your inner man. But you notice back in verse three, he mentioned by revelation, he made known to me the mystery Verse five, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So when he says be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, he's speaking about that revelation, the action and the product of that spirit through his ministry. 
In chapter 5, he says in verse 17, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And that's when he says, don't be drunk with wine when which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. A parallel passage is Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. And it says there, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so when he says, be strengthened with might through the Spirit in the inner man, he's telling them, listen, don't lose heart on what I'm going through. But you need to get into the word and let that strengthen you. And you need to be resolved to bear fruit to God's glory. He mentioned this sword of the spirit in chapter six and verse 17, which is the word of God. And it's living and powerful Hebrews four and in verse 12. And so his prayer and instruction for them is that instead of being discouraged, they would be strengthened. But that's going to happen through the word of God. The Spirit's going to operate and strengthen us through the Word of God. But it reminds me of something he told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 19. He told them, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. And so someone someone has this idea that is really denominational and it's it's idea of the Spirit's going to work in me what the Spirit's going to work in me. How, How could I keep that from happening? But when we realize that he's operating through the Word and that it involves our resolve to study it and apply it, then we understand how we might quench that spirit. How are you going to put the spirit's work at bed? How are you going to, how are you going to put the spirit's fire out? Well, I can do that by shutting the word of God, by not meditating on the spirit's revelation and his prayer to God on behalf of the Ephesians, that they would realize that all his labor that put him in prison in the first place was so that they could continue to feed off of it and receive strength and nourishment from it. But this builds off of itself. He says that they would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so I would not honor the work in the gospel and the fact that it's here based on work of men like Paul and God through them by just living the same old life by hanging on to the world. His prayer is that they would honor what he's done for them and put them into prison in the first place by letting Christ into their life. And Christ would come in through the strength of the Spirit, certainly. But as they're strengthened with the Spirit in the inward man, they're strengthened by Christ, Philippians 4 and verse 13. And so he's telling them, you need to let Christ in. That's been the whole purpose of my stewardship, of my ministry He told them that he revealed Christ Jesus to them so that they could have access to the Father through that one body reconciled to the cross. He mentioned that in chapter 2. Let Christ in fully. And brethren, that would be his encouragement to us. Did you know that Jesus wants to make his home with you? Christ wants full access into your life. In John chapter 14 and verse 23 This is what Jesus told the disciples there. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus is one who wants to be in fellowship with everyone, especially you. He he wants to be involved in the lives of his brethren. But here's the problem. Sometimes we don't let him gain full access And Paul is saying that my prayer to God for you is that you would let Christ in. 
Let him dwell in you. Let him inhabit you. Let him take his place in you. And of course, this is figurative language of a relationship spiritually. You notice there in John 14 and verse 20, he said at that day when the Holy Spirit is is coming upon you apostles and you're given the full revelation of the gospel and that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And so there's this mutual indwelling. We talk about the indwelling of the Spirit. We should talk in the same language about the indwelling of Christ and the indwelling of the Father, but also of our indwelling in them. It's, that's the intimacy of this relationship that he's expressing. And so he's talking about how he wants a relationship with us. And that's what Paul's saying. I want them to have a full relationship with Christ. I want it to be as though Christ is living in them. That's how strong the relationship is. But you notice there in John 14, 23, he spoke about how if you keep my word, we'll come and make our home with you. Verse 21, he said much the same thing. He who keeps my commandments is he who loves me and will manifest ourselves to him. And so he says in chapter three of Ephesians and in verse 17 that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Very figurative language to express the relationship By faith, he says, and we remember Galatians 2 and verse 20, where Paul says it is no longer I who live as I've been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in me. And he says, the life that I now live, I live in the by in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when I accept the gospel in Christ by faith and live by it, faith being an act of submission and loyalty to the word of God, to Christ through the spirit revealed word, then you can't tell where Jeremiah ends and Christ begins. That's the concept. Let him in fully. His prayer is that they would let Christ dwell in them through faith. But brethren, if he's to dwell in us, we've got to make room for him. He's trying to fill all things. You notice in chapter 4, it mentions Christ's ascension. That verse 9, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all things. But why? Why did he come to earth and then go back into heaven? It says that he might fill all things. We know his death had to occur for that to happen. But we also know he had to enter into the holiest with his blood, receive a kingdom to send the spirit to fill all things. And so he goes on to describe that, that he left these gifts. Inspired teachers are a part of that for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Notice verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So let him in through the gospel dwelling in you by faith. But you got to give room for that. You remember in Matthew chapter six, how Jesus spoke about the problem of worry that was right on the heels of the problem of materialism and treasuring those things on earth. And he spoke about how you can't serve two masters. You'll love the one or hate the other. You'll despise the one or be loyal to the other. You can't serve both God and man. And he talked about how your eye needs to be singly focused because if you let in a little bit of darkness, your whole body will be full of darkness. And so when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, the prayer is for the Ephesians to realize they need to let Jesus have all the room within them. They don't leave any other spot for something else. 
And I think that's the struggle in faith and Christianity that many Christians have. Why is it so hard for me to be faithful? Why am I dealing with such a struggle when it seems so easy for other Christians that I might look up to? Well, maybe you're not letting Jesus in. Understanding what that means by faith in his word, letting him gain control of your life. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 4 when the Galatians were turning to Judaizing teachers. He mentioned his preaching of the gospel to them at the first. And then in Galatians 4 and in verse 19, he said this, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. But you notice his labor among them in the gospel was so that Christ would be formed in them. And that's how we would honor his work. The fact that we have the Bible for us today and God's good grace has bestowed that upon us. The way we repay, the way we reciprocate love and honor is by letting it have that effect in our lives. But you notice what he says next there, that as they let themselves be strengthened through the spirit in the inner man and Christ dwells in their hearts through faith. One of the ways that Paul wants them to react to his imprisonment to to go on based on everything he's done for them up to this point and the ministry of the gospel bringing them into the family of God is that they would be rooted and grounded in love that's our purpose the whole purpose of discipleship is to be rooted and grounded in love which is inseparable from the strength of the spirit in the inner man and of the indwelling of Christ through his word as he takes control Everything we do is either gained value or is devalued by the presence of love or the lack of love. Remember in 1 Corinthians 16 and in verse 13, Paul said, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. You've got a lot of brethren who want to be that way. But then he says, also let all you, be, all you do be done with love. It makes no difference if I'm gung-ho about defending the truth. If I don't love the brethren I'm preaching to, if I don't, if I don't love the souls that I'm trying to convince of the truth, it, it makes no difference. And so far as my standing with God, let all you do be done with love. And that's what we read in 1 Corinthians 13. You can light yourself on fire in the name of Jesus and to his glory. Sacrifice yourself in the most impressive way. And it means nothing without love. And so he wants them to be rooted and grounded in love. And it it's instrumental in understanding what it means for the spirit to strengthen us and what it means for Christ to dwell in us. Our whole life begins and grows from the foundation of love. And doesn't that make sense? Since God is love and Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But he uses some interesting figures here. He uses an agricultural figure of being rooted in love and then an architectural figure of being grounded in love. You might remember in Jeremiah's prophecy, in Jeremiah 17, uh, similar to the language of uh, Psalm 1, he says in verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. And so the idea of being rooted in love is is that imagery that the roots run deep and wide by a source of nutrition, but not just to run deep and wide. You you know, there are some plants that have some pretty impressive roots 
and there's not much above the surface. But this is so that as we grow down deep into love, we we flower up and grow into fruitfulness. And that's what he's he's praying on their behalf for, that they would be rooted in love so that all the fruit that the gospel would produce comes out in their life. But it's all rooted in love. It's all for the right reason and therefore directed and applied in the right way. And it's no different with this idea of being grounded. You build your life on the rock, Jesus said in Matthew 7. The rock being his word and there's stability where the storm comes and it it does not fall. But but a foundation is not just to have a slab out in the middle of a field. But so that you can build a, a house on it, you can you can build upwards with it. And so there's rooted and grounded and love is that soil. Love is that foundation. But that's intended for your life to blossom forth in activity to be a parent in the service of the kingdom. But love is the source. I want you to be rooted and grounded in that. We read a lot about love within the Bible. Remember in Colossians 3, though, a very impressive description of love when he tells the Christians there to put on this new man, which has many characteristics that are very valuable. But then he says this in Colossians 3 and verse 14. And and keep in mind that this is about our life being hidden with Christ and God. This is about doing everything and saying everything within the name of Jesus by his authority. And he says, in the midst of all of that, above all these things, put on love. And so you're rooted in love when you're doing all of this. Love is, he says, the bond of perfection. It's the glue which holds it all into a a complete unit. I think that when we read of the fruit of the spirit, it kind of helps even furthermore with that imagery. All of these characteristics are important and need to be there by the child of God, but it's glued together by love. It's made a unit and it's given purpose and harmony through love as its root, as its basis. And so in Galatians 5, he calls it first, I want us to note the fruit of the spirit. And I know we sometimes say fruits of the spirit because there's more than one, but I think the point that the Spirit is making with that specific word is that the fruit singular that the Spirit bears is all of this together. And so certainly there are things that we've got to work on and some things we're better at at this point in time than others, but make no mistake about it, if you're following the Spirit's teaching, if the Spirit is strengthening your inner man and dwelling in you through the Word of God, you're bearing the fruit, all of this combined of the Spirit. But notice there, we kind of have the reverse. We studied not long ago from 2 Peter chapter 1 where love is the ascension. You're building up to love and it encompasses everything. Here he says the fruit of the Spirit is love first and then joy and peace, long-suffering, so on and so forth. I believe essentially what he's revealing is that it's the fountainhead of this fruit. That, that love, it, everything else comes out of love. Love is that glue. Love is the bond of perfection. Love is the source of every single thing else. And so you need to be rooted and grounded in love. If you have not love, it profits you nothing. If you have not love, you can't go on and do what the will of the Lord is. You you can't walk worthy of that calling without love. You need to be rooted and grounded in it. And we understand how intimate that is within the life of a Christian and how indispensable love is in the life of the Christian when you see what his prayer is in the next part. 
that as they're rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. How can we live appropriately and responsibly before Christ without first, as we remember this morning, grasping the great love that he's shown and that God's shown through his sacrifice. And so that's why we remember this weekly. We, we, we remember it daily, we should, as we recall the great love that God has had for us. And it's, it's all in an effort to, as he says, comprehend the incomprehensible. And he's not contradicting himself. We can comprehend it through our involvement in fellowship with Jesus and in our involvement in love itself, we can gain a greater appreciation for the love Christ has for us, but it's, it's immeasurable. The dimensions are insurmountable. And so there's always room for a greater appreciation and understanding of the love of Christ. And that's a goal we should have each and every day to gain a greater appreciation for Christ's love for me. God wants us to know just how much he loves us. Remember in Romans 5, in a context about tribulation, which we would need some motivation and encouragement to get through tribulation. And so he says, hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. And he explains that it was demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 and verse 8. And so he wants us to know just how much he loves us. And I think even in the infancy of my parenthood, as my children are still young, I feel the struggle of wanting them to know just how much I love them. And I can only imagine as you have rebellion in older children and maybe complete disdain for their parents, but, but even just as they grow up and they still show their love for you, you want them to know really how much you love them, don't you? I want them to know. And so essentially the idea here expressed in this is that as you're rooted and grounded in love and God wants you to comprehend just how much he loves you, Christ wants you to comprehend just how much he loved you, is that the only way you can appreciate it and fully comprehend it to the degree that Paul is praying on their behalf for is to be involved in it yourself. And so that child becomes a parent themselves. And they say, I, I know now, now I know. Now I can comprehend through experience just how much you love me. And so we sell ourselves short if we, if we buy into the denominational model of appreciating grace and love and mercy through just kind of relaxed living with a feigned appreciation for the death that purchased my soul for eternity and that I don't have to try, I don't have to do, it's just, based on his merit and I'm not called to any responsibility whatsoever because what what Jesus has implemented in the gospel and what Paul has revealed to the Ephesians and to us is that the way to honor that sacrifice, the way to honor the gospel, the way to fully appreciate the depths and dimensions of Christ's immeasurable love is to live in love like Christ lived and continues to reign. And so in John chapter 15, when Jesus would speak about the greatest love to be exhibited and that he laid down his life for his friends, he first says, as the father loved me in John 15, 9, I also have loved you. And then he says, abide in my love. And so I'm trying to impress you with how much I love you. And I'm about to go to the cross and give you the greatest manifestation of that love. So abide in that love. 
understand it, appreciate it, honor it. But how do you do that? You abide in it. And he explains what he means by that. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jude verse 20 and 21 says a similar thing. That you keep yourselves in the love of God. And once you know it in chapter 5, within the context of walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called, he tells husbands that you need to love Christ or love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And I think in that husbands and wives, as they respect and love their husbands and, and parents love their children and we all love each other and we devote ourselves as we're rooted and grounded in love, we start gaining a greater appreciation and understanding of Christ's love for us. And there's always room to grow in that. But you think about how much they loved Paul and how much they struggled and are discouraged as he's in prison. And he's in prison because of us. He's, he's there because he preached the gospel for our benefit. And what he's telling them is, listen, if you really love God, if you really love me, if you really appreciate what I've done for you and God's done for you through this stewardship of mine, then you're going to be involved in that love. You're going to seek further comprehension of Christ's love. And then he caps that off as it grows toward this goal in verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So similar to Christ dwelling in you, be impressed that God wants to fill your life. And he's got fullness, by the way. He's got a lot to give us beyond our comprehension and he wants us to have it all. He wants us to continue to consume his blessings and to grow closer in fellowship with him. And it, it, it beckons us to reflect on our very created purpose. Remember in Genesis 1 and verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We're image bearers of the creator of the universe. And that means something. We look like him, not physically, but we're image bearers and the fact that we have a soul and when we glorify him through the lives that we live. He's speaking about fellowship of, a, of an intimate way that surpasses any of the other parts of creation and their connection with the creator. We're his image bearers. And salvation in Christ Jesus is all about that being restored. In John 17 and verse 3, he says this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And he's speaking about that kind of intimate knowledge through participation as we take on the divine nature, 2 Peter 1 and verse 4. And God's wanting that for us. He wants us to be filled with his fullness. But I'm afraid some Christians only want to be filled part way with Christ and with God. They don't want him to take over his entire life. They don't want him to fill every nook and cranny of their soul, but they want just some of God when he wants the whole thing. And I think there's a practical manifestation of what it looks like for God's fullness to fill us. In Matthew 5, remember he talks about praying for enemies and doing good for enemies and that you've heard it said that you should hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But he goes on to say that if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Even the tax collectors do the same. And he says, if you greet your brethren only, what do you more do? Do you do more than others? Even the tax collectors do so. 
Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. You love your enemies so you can be complete as God is complete. And so what he's saying there is let God fill you in that aspect. You don't just let God fill you in the the idea that you would love those who are closest to you, though that is part of who God is. Loving his family, loving his people, loving his son, but even loving the unlovable and And if I really want that relationship with God, and if I'm really wanting what Paul has done, what the apostles have done, what Christ has done, what the Spirit has done in revealing the entire plan of salvation to us, I want to honor that. I want it to have its intended effect. I'm letting God all in. And that goes for everything. It goes for modesty we've been studying. Oh, I'll follow Jesus anywhere he goes. I'll I'll let God fill my soul, but I will not dress that way. And you can apply it to any other part of Christianity. Paul says, if you don't let him fill you with this fullness, it's all in vain. I spend the whole purpose. And lastly, he in his doxology says this to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. No kidding. What he just described is incredibly impressive. And he's deserving of that glory. According to the power that works in us, he says to him, be glory in the church. By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That is our purpose. He said in chapter 1 that all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are in Christ. And throughout that, he used similar language. He mentioned in verse 3, blessed be God. He's praising God. He's speaking well of God. These spiritual blessings that have been revealed and made available gives all attention to God. And then he says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 12, We who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And what he's saying is that it's all about glorifying God. And so your life in Christ Jesus is all about living to glorify him. And we don't decide for us what that looks like. The Spirit strengthens us so Christ lives in us. We're rooted in love and appreciate and comprehend Christ's love for us. God is thriving, filling us in our lives. And then He is glorified. As members of the church, let Christ live in them. This is how you respond to gospel preaching and your own Bible study. It's not enough to just kind of sing the praises of an individual or to suggest that that was a really good study. And and I really appreciate what my parents have done for me as they raised me in the church and instilled these values in me and and all of that kind of stuff. All that's good. All that's worthy. But you honor Christ and what he's done for you, the apostles and what they have done in laying that foundation that is lined up with the cornerstone for our salvation, you do that by letting the gospel have its intended effect in our life. Otherwise, it's all in vain. It's pointless. There's no purpose to what we're doing here. If it doesn't strengthen us and transform us and change us to glorify God in this way, application is imperative. These things are meant to be put into practice. But it begins at baptism. If you're here this afternoon, You've not obeyed the gospel. We want you to have that opportunity. You might be impressed by what Jesus did for you. And rightly so. You might be impressed by what these servants of God, the apostles and prophets went through for your benefit. 
They died. They were imprisoned. They suffered to reveal God's word so that we could have it today. You might be impressed by that. That's appropriate. But that doesn't mean anything if you don't apply it. What good does Jesus's blood do if all you talk about it, but it doesn't wash away your sins? And that happens in baptism. We can assist you with that this afternoon. If there's any other spiritual need that we can assist you with as well, come forward while we stand and sing.